Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to the fourth episode of Ejo, the podcast. My name is Sarah Nowen, and I'm joined by podcast hosts Dapo Akande, Marco Milanovic, and Philippa Webb. In the first three podcasts, we used COVID-19 as a lens to discuss various aspects of international law, human rights, international institutions, and cyber operations. Today, we will discuss developments at one international institution that has kept working, albeit also partially through smart working. By the way, isn't it ironic that they use the term smart working for work that is usually done in pyjamas? That institution is the International Criminal Court. But as in previous weeks, we begin with a virus. A virus that has had millions of victims. A virus that hundreds of thousands carry, with many carriers not even being aware. A virus that has been with us for centuries and still no vaccine has been developed against it. A virus that has been passed on through generations. A virus that has corroded pillars of society, sometimes covertly, sometimes in plain sight. A virus that is easily transmitted, unless one is all the time alert. A virus called racism. Watching scenes of demonstrations in response to the killing of George Floyd, hearing the testimonies of constant macro and microaggressions fueled by racism, and the pain suffered still today by descendants of slaves, I immediately thought of Kamari Clark's recent book, Effective Justice, the International Criminal Court and the Pan-African Pushback. Not because I'm thinking of prosecuting US police before the ICC in this context, I'm not, but because of her argument about how intergenerational trauma reverberates in and shapes demands for justice. She is with us today, Kamari Clark, University of California, Los Angeles Professor of Anthropology. Welcome. Thank you, Sarah. It is very exciting to have roughly the first 15 minutes of this podcast to discuss ideas of your book on the ICC, or I should in fact say books, and to do this against the background of the Black Lives Matter movement. In the second part of the podcast, we will then turn with Dapo, Marco and Philippa to the more nitty gritty doctrinal issues of current affairs before the court. First, back to where we started, with a virus and a court. Kamari, do Black Lives Matter before the International Criminal Court? Because on the one hand, I could imagine the ICC arguing that Lady Justice is colorblind. And in fact, the ICC has justified its focus on Africa in part by reference to the effect or, or, that most victims of international crimes are in Africa, suggesting that it makes sure that Black Lives Matter. But on the other hand, the concern of the Black Lives Matter movement seems to be inequality. And a critique from African corners has been that the ICC entrenches inequality. Dierit Ladi has argued that the law on immunities is not applied equally. Fred McGrath has argued that there is no equal distribution of blame across the world. So considered in this light, I repeat the question, what is your view? Do Black Lives Matter at the ICC? Okay, good. Um, thank you, Sarah. And um, thank you to Philippa, Marco and, and Dapo as well for having me as part of the conversation. Uh, so do Black Lives Matter for the ICC? Well, of, of course, yes, in principle, and much of your preface uh, says that, that in principle, as we know, the ICC's core mission is to pursue crimes that are of greatest concern to all of humanity. And of course, to ensure that the most responsible uh, or those who are most responsible for mass atrocity crimes are held accountable. 
And, and of course, we know that the ICC proudly regales being colorblind and using the law uh, not to pursue politics, but in fact, to achieve colorblind policies. And so the narrative goes. But what I argue in effective justice then is that international justice isn't simply a discursive concept. It isn't simply something that produces the means to adjudicate mass atrocity violence. Uh, instead, the, the, the argument in the book is that international justice is actually propelled through socio-political, juridical, uh, as well as technocratic modes of production, and that those mechanisms are fundamentally effective. And, and so the, the, this affective component, the emotions, the embodied responses, the kind of the representations of the court's work through the figure of the victim, uh, this is part of the, the, the court's work. And so in practice, when, when we interrogate whether or not, as your question suggests, whether or not all lives matter for the ICC, uh, one of the ways that we might think about this is to reflect on whether or not, or the ICC's threshold calculus, for example. So for the ICC, all lives do not necessarily qualify equally. And if we take, for example, the ICC's gravity threshold that considers scale, nature, uh, manner, impact, uh, and in fact, you'll recall um, some time ago in the Kenyan situation, the German judge on, on the court at the time felt that the death of uh, 1,200 people and the injury of 3,500 in eight of Kenya's provinces wasn't sufficient, uh, sufficiently grave to warrant the opening of an investigation. And so in, in answering the question, do all lives matter, then one question that emerges is whether or not 1,200 lives constitutes a crime against humanity on the basis on which the ICC should claim jurisdiction and pursue a case. Of course, um, all lives matter, but once you root the principle through juridical frameworks that all lives cannot matter for international in the same way, we see that there certainly are limits in the law and limits on what judges think the law can do or it ought not to do. And the, this calculus around life, the value of life is often balanced in relation to a range of things, scale, manner of violence, impact, all of these measures. And of course, these measures are part of the selectivity process that affects which lives are impacted and, and which lives may be lost. Okay, so you focus here very much on which lives. A separate or perhaps additional question is what kind of life matters? Is the International Criminal Court mostly concerned about the protection of, um, in a Gambon's terms, Zoe, so the, the biological fact of life, or is it also interested in protecting bios, the quality of the life that's being lived? Yeah. Um, so in principle, the prosecutor for the ICC would say that life that is ongoing, of course, matters and that the court is concerned and committed to life preservation. And through the ICC's deterrence goals, uh, that matters before the court. So all life matters. But, but for the most part, the reality is that the subject of the court's work are actually lives that have been taken, dead people, right? So in other words, the, the, the court works on behalf of, or at least a significant number of, of the cases before the court. The court works on behalf of victims whose lives have been eclipsed uh, by some of the, what's classified as the worst crimes known to 
humankind. So the idea is through retributive justice mechanisms, it works on behalf of society to repair the harm done and that the court's work is retrospective um, and technically corrective. And, and so you mentioned Agamben um, and his concepts of Zoe and, and Bios. Um, and, and of course, the reality today is that there's little distinction between Zoe and Bio. What the, the ICC sees the life of victims or witnesses that it serves in many ways as bare life. Uh, using Agamben's terms. Uh, and what's important here, and, and what I discuss in, in both books, in Fictions of Justice, as well as the, the uh, Effect of Justice, is that the law, international law, in many ways in relation to, to the category of the victim, decontextualizes victims, and, and or it decontextualizes it in many ways, depoliticizes victims into flat categories, so that victims become we might even say jurified, so that, that concept that um, both uh, Sarah uh, Nowen and Sarah Kendall have so usefully argued. And it's this deep politicization that reflects what I argue is the pre presumptive pre-political life that, um, that is part of the social relationships that the, the court tries to reference. Uh, so it, it's it 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 doesn't and it doesn't stop there. What becomes important for making sense of what kinds of lives matter for the ICC is is also considering what type of violence is managed by the ICC, uh, and and also reflecting on what type of violence is outside of the court's jurisdiction. Ultimately, in in effective justice, then I I argue that the conditions of the possibility of jurisdiction uh, for the court is historical. It's structural. It's, it's legitimized through particular emotive and embodied responses that propel the work of the court. And, and that um, if, if we want to think about what kinds of lives, part of it is to think about what those structural mechanisms are that disqualify uh, other kinds of actions by the court. So one thing that your book argues is that experiences of injustice shape visions of justice. Now, if we look at the ICC's jurisdiction, which experiences of injustice have been included and which have been written out of the script or out of the statute? Well, that's that's correct. In, in many ways, the book uh, does look at the experiences of injustice and the ways that they shape vision for, for justice. The other important point to think about is the temporal jurisdiction of the court. And this is where I, I think in many ways, the, the something like the crime of apartheid and other crimes that are seen as historical crimes or continuing crimes that continue to have implications for contemporary violence in places like in, in African countries where electoral violence is an issue and other things are issues, um, the, the temporal limitation has implications for historical crimes that can be adjudicated. Uh, and, and so what that means, so yes, the crime of apartheid is uh, is, is subsumed under the, the chapeau of crimes, but historically the, the mechanisms, the structural underpinnings that the Black Lives Matter movement and others are calling for us to examine isn't possible through the international law uh, because of these temporal limitations, that, that the structural conditions that enabled the possibility for violence in this first place cannot be adjudicated, but the temporal jurisdiction post-2002, you know, or in the case of the ICT, ICTR, 
1994 or the Special Court of Sierra Leone 1996. Uh, these, you know, there's strict um, moments in which uh, the temporal jurisdiction can be taken up and moving forward so that the court becomes prospective. So, Kamari, here you really challenge the international lawyers uh, among us. Is it right? Uh, international law can't do anything about these structural underpinnings of uh, inequality? I mean, I don't think that's right. So, so the, uh, it's one thing to say that in an international criminal court... Uh, can't do something about long-standing problems in, in, in many societies all over the world. But that's because the, the mission of a criminal court is a very limited one. But there are many other parts of international law that have something useful to say on, on deep, deep, deep structural problems and long-standing issues. Technically, I agree with Marco that, that there are limits, and that's actually my point. There are limits to what the, this mechanism can do, and these problems are deeply political problems that 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 actually require political solutions and that law can can set the lead, um, legal decision-making can uh, establish norms, uh, they can put in place the possibility to exemplify certain standards. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're talking about deeply political issues that require structural reorganization, economic restructuring, a range of things that, that go well beyond the law. Sure, but I mean, nobody says, though, that international criminal law can deal with this. I mean, there have been attempts sort of in, in like the former Yugoslavia or in the transitional justice context, there have been attempts to sort of bring international criminal law into a more ambitious kind of sphere that can fix all sorts of problems in, in deeply uh, conflicted and affected societies. But those promises have time and again, including here in, in, in the former Yugoslavia, sort of proven to be infeasible. Um, and, and one certainly cannot expect the International Criminal Court to, to resolve these deep, deep sort of no, structural I think problems. We have it just cannot be done by a criminal court, let alone by an international criminal court. Doesn't it raise also questions for international law beyond the International Criminal Court? Because you mentioned human rights yeah, law. Sure. But human rights law focuses on a particular type of inequality that it prohibits, but more structural issues of inequality, as a recent post on the Egil Talk block beautifully set out, it has it has difficulties in, in addressing. And similarly, if you look about state responsibility, we have this issue with the intertemporal rule that um, may cause huge obstacles to getting reparations to victims mm. of conduct that today would be considered a violation of human rights law or other laws. In a strange kind of way, Marco and I probably... I mean, we certainly agree because both of us are saying that there are limits to the law and what we can expect yeah. of international criminal law probably should be mediated by what it's meant to do. And I think that the most, the important question, I, I think the one of the, the, the critical questions we can answer and uh, one of the things that we can examine is the, the, some of the embedded forms of structural equality that still remain, that, that that are part of the design of the Rome Statute currently, that are part of the negotiated settlement. And, I, I, you know, the um, UN Security Council referral power is, is one of those examples. And if we start, we think about the Sudan referral, we think about the Libya referral and uh, NATO and the nature of violence, if we think about the the double standards um, that the the that this mechanism enables, uh, where you you have in Sri Lanka, uh, 
you know, the lack of action. You have in, in Palestine, uh, the lack of action. You have in Syria, of course, another example of um, the dispensing of juridical privilege to client states under, under the protection of Russia and China. There are structural problems here. And I think more than expecting much more from the law, one of the things we can expect at least is a mechanism uh, that, that doesn't foster such forms of structural inequality. The accusation of double standards that has been particularly strongly voiced um, in Africa, uh, the focus of your book. But the ICC has not only had a kind of crisis of authority in the African continent. Recently, we've had very strong language from other parts of the world. Um, not only uh, President Museveni in Kenyatta, that we ha- whom we had already heard, but now it's also the US President Trump, <laughs> Trump who's yeah. lashing out against the court. Dapo, can you give us a bit of background what uh, provoked his anger in this particular area? Well, the anger of of Trump is provoked really by one of those structural things in the ICC, which is that the court is designed to be capable of having jurisdiction over the nationals of states that are not parties to its statute. And in a number of situations, the court has either opened examinations or possibly investigations into the actions of a number of big powers who are not parties to the statute, but when they act on the territory of a state that is party. So the ICC prosecutor requested um, authorization to investigate the situation in Afghanistan. But in investigating the situation in Afghanistan, she is going to investigate not just the acts of the you know, Afghan government and the Taliban, but also most notably actions of, of the US. Incidentally, actually, actions of the US outside also of Afghanistan, but related to, to Afghanistan. Investigating issues relating to Russia in, in Georgia, mm-hmm. um, possibly going to investigate actions of Israel in Palestine, There are now calls for the examination of the actions of China insofar as it's taking uh, action against the Uyghurs, and this is causing them to to leave China and to go on to territory of ICC parties. So quite understandably, these uh, non-state parties are upset that a court whose statute they haven't accepted is seeking to exercise jurisdiction over them. And most recently, this has led to President Trump um, signing an executive order imposing sanctions on the ICC and on all those who seek to aid the ICC. Yeah, and we've heard arguments that those sanctions then in and of themselves are violations of international law. What are your views? Well, uh, there's a whole variety of sanctions there, right? Mainly targeting uh, or potentially targeting ICC personnel. Um, and this is just a, another one in a long series of sanctions, unilateral sanctions the United States has, has adopted against various actors worldwide that have been very controversial as to their international legality. I mean, one big problem here, of course, is that these sanctions are, for the time being, a threat in the air, right? They have not yet been applied to any specific person affiliated with the ICC, um, like the ICC judges or prosecutor or whoever. Uh, of course, the mere existence of the sanctions is 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 uh, chilling in and of itself, and is intended to be such, right? Uh, but it could be again, depending on how things play out, depending on the outcome of the U.S. elections, that the sanctions are never never actually going to get applied to a specific person. And until they get applied to a specific person, it is difficult to discuss their legality. 
whether they're, for example, violating the human rights of that person, whether they're an exorbitant exercise of jurisdiction by the United States, which may violate the rights of some other state, the sovereignty of some other state, um, or, or perhaps even violate the principle of non-intervention vis-a-vis that other state. Uh, one thing we can say is that the ICC as an institution is not protected from the United States by any kind of obligation of cooperation or non-interference on the part of the United States. The United States has no obligation to not bother the court. Uh, and so in that sense, it can do what it wants. So, Marco, the initial reactions uh, in the US and, and elsewhere to these sanctions have not really focused on international law. So 174 lawyers and professors have called the sanctions or potential sanctions wrong in principle, contrary to American values and prejudicial to US national security, but they're not invoking international law as such. Mm. And 34 UN experts, including the special rapporteur on the independence of judges, have also taken a very rights-based approach. So they've said that these measures interfere with judicial independence, uh, they violate the privileges and immunities of international judges and civil servants, and they've also invoked uh, retroactive punishment, right to a fair trial, freedom of movement and privacy and family life. But the big picture here is unilateral targeted sanctions in international law, which are used extensively in cases beyond the ICC. I think the US is putting a thousand names on their list of targeted sanctions every year at the moment. And their status in international law is quite questionable. So there's a distinction, for instance, that Davika Hovel has drawn between coercive and corrective unilateral sanctions. Obviously, corrective sanctions tie into this whole idea of, of countermeasures, which is not a framework that these ICC sanctions fit into, whereas coercive sanctions are less likely to be lawful and are really aiming at uh creating pressure on another state or entity for policy change. But I just wanted to flag that targeted sanctions can also be used to promote human rights and to respond to human rights violations. We've all heard of... I'm sure that Trump will be arguing that this is the case here. (laughs) Well, ironically, it was the US that passed the Magnitsky laws under Obama, of course, that are uh, the symbol of this kind of human rights-oriented sanction. The UK just announced uh, sanctions against 29 individuals under its own Magnitsky legislation. So we're talking here about crisis of authority. When you have a security council that's deadlocked, you have an ICC that's being challenged from many quarters, it might be up to targeted sanctions to actually put pressure on perpetrators of international crimes around the world. And on the ICC prosecutor. No, not on the ICC prosecutor. (laughs) (laughs) But it's contempt of court to do it against the ICC prosecutor, isn't it, Dapo? Yeah, so, I mean, here the question that arises is whether or not the imposition of these sanctions would in itself be a violation of the ICC statute. So I see three questions that arise there. So number one, just reading the statute, right? Is it an offence against the administration of justice? To which the answer is yes. You look at Article 70 of the ICC statute and the types of things that it describes, you know, intimidating, impeding officials from performing their functions, that this would fall within that. The second question, and a more difficult one, is does the court actually have jurisdiction over these individuals, given that 
U.S. officials are not nationals, sorry, they're not nationals of states' parties, and they are not committing these acts on the territory of a state party. So here, the ICC statute does a very interesting thing. It leaves this jurisdictional question to the rules of procedure and evidence. And then if you look at the rules of procedure and evidence, it says that for these types of crimes, the normal jurisdictional rules don't apply. In short, the ICC has universal jurisdiction for this type of thing. The third question, and I think the more difficult one, is is all of this consistent with international law, regardless of the Rome Statute? Because these are officials acting in an official capacity. Now, one might answer that by saying, look at the ICC statute, Article 27, it excludes the defense of official capacity. And you might say, well, international law says no defense of official capacity for international crimes. But the problem is, are these international crimes? So for the core crimes, war crimes, genocide crimes against humanity, yes, no official capacity defense. But this type of activity is arguably not a crime under international law in that pure sense. And if it's not, that means that the official capacity defense remains, which means that as a matter of international law, um, these individuals are not subject to the jurisdiction of, of other states. And I would argue, therefore, also not subject to the jurisdiction of, of, of an international court, unless we say that international law has developed to, you know, uh, to, to also extending no official capacity to this type of crime. Not sure about that. I completely agree with you, Dapo. But uh, you know, the whole pro- problem of of, uh, of official immunity uh, for the conduct of the officials of non-state parties that has been litigated so much uh, in the scholarly literature and before the court culminating in the Bashir b- b- decision only is only more acute here when we're not dealing with a core international crime, and it leads us to the fundamental dilemma of how states A and B can create a court that can then prosecute for contempt of court an official of state C that did only some 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 of its their work in, in in on the territory of state C. More fundamentally, however, there's a question of the practical wisdom of any course of action of prosecuting Donald Trump for contempt of ICC. Can you just imagine how that would play in the media? How 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 what Trump would do out of that? He would have anti-ICC rallies and, you know, maskless anti-ICC rallies. Honest to God, like, the most stupid thing the ICC could do would be to, to proxy American officials for implementing these sanctions, especially remember when these sanctions have not yet been implemented. So it's not cowardly, to, to use that word, for the ICC to refrain from acting on this or to act only diplomatically. It is the wisest possible course of action, especially because six months down the line, they might be dealing with an entirely different U.S. administration. Kamari, wouldn't you think that it would address the double standards issue that you raised? Yeah, precisely. Um, in in every way, in fact, and and probably, I, I mean, I would probably even ask Marco to then to do a thought exercise to see if this logic would follow through in the case of al-Bashir in, in Sudan, a non-state party, or um, uh, maybe even in Kenya and the, the, you know, the exercise of complementarity and the extent to which the ICC or the prosecutor at the time acted too quickly. I mean, there, there are many examples here, but yes, in, indeed, there, there are double standards and I think this is part of the challenge ahead. 
You know, it, it's interesting this point that we're making because though it is hypothetical, it actually goes to the core of the nature of the ICC. What kind of court is this? Is this a court of delegated jurisdiction where states have given it powers that they ordinarily would have? Or is this a court that has its own sort of inherent powers, which the states that created it would not themselves have, right? I think that's the kind of key legal issue that this this uh, thought experiment about Article 70 raises, because for those who have the vision of a court that has its own sort of authority, then there's nothing wrong for it to exercise authority over the U.S. or rather over U.S. officials, even though these officials are not acting on the territory of a state party, even though the U.S. is not a state party, because the court has some kind of inherent jurisdiction on its own. The question is whether that's the vision of the actual creators of the court, you know, and whether the court's jurisdiction is more limited. So that question actually goes further, it seems to me. It also applies to the question that is currently before the court um, with respect to Palestine. Of course, there one element of that question is the same. Would the court be able to exercise jurisdiction over Israeli nationals who are accused of having committed crimes in Palestine? On, on the basis of which one can say the Rome Statute, that's pretty, pretty clear, yes, per se. But the question then also arises, does the court have the jurisdiction to address the preliminary question about what actually is the Palestinian territorial jurisdiction. So, Dabo, you've written a post on whether the monetary gold principle applies to this situation. Is the court bound by the monetary gold principle? Or is it, again, that the court has such a broad jurisdiction that it does that it is not uh, relevant for the court? Yeah, let me just take one step back. You know, I think in the context of the Palestine situation, there's been a lot of focus on the issue of is Palestine a state? So we know that Palestine has acceded to the statute and in that sense, giving the court jurisdiction. But this issue that you've just raised, Sarah, is one that goes beyond that, right? So even assuming that Palestine was a state, there would clearly be a territorial dispute between Palestine and Israel as to the extent of Palestinian territory which then raises the question as to whether these alleged crimes occur on the territory of Palestine or on the territory of, of Israel. So can the court decide this question? That's effectively what the ICC prosecutor has asked the pretrial chamber to decide. Said, you tell me what's the territory of Palestine, territory which is also actually claimed by, by Israel. So in that blog post that you mentioned, I argued that the consent principle, the principle that international courts and tribunals only have jurisdiction over states where states have given their consent, that that principle applies even to an international criminal tribunal. And so even though the ICC has jurisdiction over what happens in Palestine because of Palestinian consent, my argument is that the principle that the ICJ has laid out, that where the very subject matter of the dispute is one which um, relates to the rights or the responsibilities of a third state, where that's the very subject matter, then the, the court, any international court, doesn't have jurisdiction. So that's the monetary gold principle that you that you mentioned. Now, it's never been applied before by an international criminal court, but my argument is that this is a principle that applies to any tribunal that operates on the basis of international law because both the ICJ 
and the before it, the Permanent Court of International Justice has said that this is a principle that actually derives from, from state sovereignty. And so there's no reason why it shouldn't apply to an international criminal court. Dapo, can I push back uh, against that a bit? So imagine any situation where the court's jurisdiction is territorial, but the person being investigated for a crime is not the national or state party. And imagine that state party of, of the nationality of the perpetrator simply says, well, actually, we claim that territory. There's a dispute between us and the territorial state. So in your argument, for example, Russia can say, well, Crimea is ours, so any crime in, that happened in Crimea is outside the court's jurisdiction. Or Russia can say anything that happened in eastern Ukraine is outside the court's jurisdiction because there's a dispute, whatever the dispute is exactly, on the status of that territory. Or it can do the same in Georgia for crimes that took place in Abkhazia or South Ossetia. So the pushback against you would be sort of it enables the other state, non, the non-state party, to generate a dispute and by generating that dispute, abusively limit the court's jurisdiction, basically. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, we need to draw a distinction between the question, does the principle apply to the ICC? And then secondly, how does the principle apply, right? So assume the principle applies, then the question is, when does the monetary gold principle actually apply, or how does it apply? And I would argue there that, you know, a state can't simply just say, you know, we have a dispute today. You know, there are uh, if you have a circumstance where the state has ordinarily accepted certain territorial limits, you know, so for example, uh, if, if the US now all of a sudden said, you know, today, um, we now claim kind of half of Canada. And so we have a dispute with Canada. You mm-hmm. could argue that that's, that's kind of abusive. This is not a case where there was actually a pre-existing dispute. I think that's very different from cases where it is well known that there is a pre-existing dispute between the states concerned about this territory. And the reason- but even so, right, yeah. the dispute can be generated reasonably quickly. So look at, look at Crimea again as an example. For I don't know how many years Russia at no point claimed Crimea, then over a, few, a period of weeks or months, it did. And you can't say there was no dispute, right? So under your argument... Any war crime allegedly committed by Russian forces in, in, in Crimea would not be within the court's jurisdiction because of monetary gold, right? Be- well, it, it's a matter of at the, the time when the crime was, was committed. So if the crime was committed at a time where actually there was that dispute and the court would have to decide essentially on that question, then I would say, I would say yes. And the reason why I think that this is important is because I mean, on the one hand, you might say, oh, all the court is deciding is about the criminal responsibility of individual A. But actually, criminal responsibility of individual A flows from, at least in my vision, flows from whether or not the state concerned has jurisdiction over that territory. So deciding on whether or not, you know, um, on, on whose territory it is, is actually deciding the things that the territorial dispute are about. Territorial disputes are about who's entitled to exercise jurisdiction. So it's not just deciding the criminal jurisdiction of uh, criminal responsibility of individual A. It's also about deciding on all the things that flow from territorial sovereignty. But Dabo, is your argument applicable as well to states' parties? So... Well, that's a, a difficult one. So, arguably, you might say uh, no because they've given they've given consent. 
But that then raises a second issue as to what it is that they've given consent to, right? So have they given consent to the court deciding on this incidental question of territorial jurisdiction? Now, that's a question actually that all international courts and tribunals face, um, where they have clearly, where the tribunal has a jurisdiction over a particular issue, but to decide that issue, it has to decide a second issue. So the European Court of Human Rights has, has faced this issue Oh, I think also in relation to territorial issues. I would say there, though I haven't thought too much about this, but I would say there that if they have given their consent, then if it's necessary to determine the issue over which they've given their consent, we should imply or assume that they've given their consent for that too. So if you have disputed territory and, you know, groups angling for statehood or annexation, they'll take anything they can get, including the pronouncement of an international court, whether it was necessary or not, to bolster their case. Exactly right. And and that's why this litigation is being launched. That's why there's so many investment cases dealing with Ukraine Russia. It was precisely in order to advance a territorial claim, right? So so I mean th- there's no doubt about that. The the issue is if you're say a court of a limited mission, like the European Court of Human Rights, should you avoid questions that do not fall within the scope of that mission? The problem for the ICC in the Palestine context is that it really can't. Yes. As, as, as Dapa was explaining, right, the, the basis of the court jurisdiction is the issue of sovereignty. And so it will either just completely say monetary gold applies and we don't get into that, the case is not admissible, or it has to resolve the sovereignty issue over, over territory, which is hugely problematic. I mean, j- just a couple of points here. So the first thing to note is that even though this is similar to all these issues of incidental jurisdiction before other tribunals, the difference, of course, here is the fundamental question of the consent of the state, right? So in all the other cases, you know, you can imply consent. Here, we cannot imply in any way that Israel has consented. So though I think the monetary gold principle does apply to the ICC, it's important to note that there are exceptions to the application of the principle, and in particular cases where there are what the ICJ has described as givens, which the court can just apply without having to decide for itself. Givens, that's always a very interesting question because it raises the question, what is a given and what is not a given? We can have a big fight about that. But one thing I think that is given is that there is no agreement yet about this fundamental issue that Dapo mentioned. What is the nature of this court? Is it a court of states parties or is it a court that derives its jurisdiction from something that's almost transcendental, that is that's beyond the states parties? But it is good to end a podcast with fundamental questions still open, so that there's more to discuss in the future. First things first, however. Kamari, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. To stay up to date with what's happening in the world of international law and to listen to previous episodes of the podcast, visit egiltalk.org.